Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 150 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust your work? Do you trust yourself enough to let your work go wherever it wants to go and thereby to be authentic? Now, that's one of the many questions and challenges that I explore with my guest in this episode of the podcast. His name is Brother Guy Consolmagno, and he is a Jesuit brother and also an MIT-trained research astronomer. And he is currently director of the Vatican Observatory, which makes him, in colloquial terms, the Pope's astronomer. In this episode, we talk about science, faith and science fiction and how both his faith and scientific career have given him an inquiring mind and why, as writers, we need to develop that same sense of curiosity about the world and the universe around us and also retain a sense of wonder and to trust in the truth of the story. And we'll take all those disparate bits and bind them together in this conversation. But before we get to that interview, If you're listening to this podcast soon after it's released, which is in the middle of November in 2019, then hey, Christmas is coming. And if you are looking for ideas for presents for yourself to suggest to other people or for something that you can get for the writers or readers in your life, can I recommend two of my books which are available now? First of all, the one you probably already know about if you've listened to this podcast at all before, and that is the Creative Writer's Toolbelt Handbook, which is the book that accompanies the podcast and condenses all of the best advice and insight I've received over the first 100 episodes from writers, editors and agents. It takes all of the best advice that my guests have given me and that I've discovered over the years doing the podcast and condenses it all into one volume and that covers fundamentals like the dimensions of the plot, authentic characters, setting, theme, voice and many more. It's a great reference work to accompany the podcast and to help you with your creative writing. And then there's also my novel, The Centauri Survivors, a tale of exploration and betrayal on the first habitable exoplanet to be discovered by humanity. And I published this book in the summer of this year, having written it over a period of about eight to ten years. And I just want to read a paragraph from the cover of the book to give you an idea of what it's about. When a habitable planet is discovered just four light years from Earth, governments and private corporations rush to build a ship to take the first humans there. But only a few of the colonists wake up from cryosleep after the 60-year journey, and as their ship comes into orbit around the new planet, they find themselves surrounded by death. As the survivors scramble to make sense of what has happened, they find their own lives under threat, and, pursued by their enemies, they escape to the surface of the new planet. Caught between their human adversaries and whatever the planet throws at them, the survivors fight to stay alive as circumstances drive them towards a final, deadly confrontation. Both of these books would make great presents. The first one for a writer, uh, the second one for a writer or a reader. And you can find them both on Amazon right now. So back to this episode and a conversation with Brother Guy Consolmagno. I really enjoyed this conversation exploring themes of imagination, observation, faith and truth with Brother Guy. 
I think you'll enjoy this conversation wherever you are in terms of spirituality. Here it is. So, Brother Guy, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for your time. It's a lot of fun to be here. So I want to start uh, by giving you an opportunity just to introduce yourself and to tell us a bit about you and particularly your passions for faith and science and science fiction. Well, they're all tied together in a funny way. Uh, You can tell from my accent that I'm not an Italian, even though I live at the Vatican. I'm originally from Detroit. Uh, I tell people I grew up north of Canada, which is true of that little part of Detroit where I used to live many years ago. And I grew up as a Sputnik kid, which meant I went to kindergarten the year that Sputnik went in orbit, 1957. And I graduated high school the year that people landed on the moon. And in between, we watched every space launch. And I grew up in this atmosphere of not only with space everywhere, but also, oh my gosh, every smart little boy had to be a scientist because the Russians were going to beat us if they didn't do that. (laughs) Uh, Sadly, it was all boys, not girls back in those days, which uh, was one of the many flaws in that theory. The family I came from was both very well educated and yet very traditional. My dad was the son of Italian immigrants, my mom the daughter of Irish immigrants. And so both of them actually wound up going to college. In fact, even my grandpa, who was, you know, seven years old when he got to Boston and didn't speak any English, wound up going to Boston University and getting a law degree. Wow. So there was education on both sides of the family. And I came I was the youngest of three kids. We were all definitely too smart for our own good. And it was a fun atmosphere to be around because Though I was the smart little kid, I was never the smartest. And even in that grade school I went to, there were lots of kids who were just as good as me in school. And that meant I never felt alone. I went to the Jesuit high school in Detroit. And that's where they told me all the smart kids did Latin and Greek. So I did Latin and Greek. (laughs) And I thought, well, so much for being a scientist. That's boring. Everybody's going to be a scientist. But my brother, my older brother, was a great reader. We were all great readers. The biggest treat was to go to the bookstore. And the science fiction section of our library was right at the door to the grown-up section. So as you're a kid and you're waiting in the doorway for your mom to come with her pile of books, there were the science fiction books right there. Uh, My brother started throwing them. Yeah. And, of course, whatever he read, I would read. Uh, So Albert North and uh, the Comus and McKeeley, uh, um, the, the Treasury of Science Fiction, all those stories, and then all the classics, um, these are what I grew up on. Well, by the time I was finished with high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do, anywhere from writing science fiction stories to being a lawyer or a journalist, or I didn't know what. And I went off to Boston College thinking maybe I'd be a history major, but I studied classics and I did more Latin and more German. And my best friend from high school was going to MIT. Um, And MIT had weekend movies, so I'd hang out there with him on the weekends and pinball machines and Tunnels. It's MIT's one giant building all connected with tunnels or, or bridges. And you could explore it all during the night because nothing was locked in those days. This was just heaven. You could see real things were going on there. <laughs> but the best of all was it had the world's largest open shelf science fiction collection. Ah, uh, okay. And I started plotting my uh, transfer to there immediately. I had to come up with a major. Well, I knew I was going to be a physics major because I'd been you know, studying Latin and Greek. I had the you know, math, but that was about it. And I wasn't going to be an engineer because I'm hopeless at building things. But I saw one major you could chuck off that said Earth and Planetary Science. 
planets. That's like astronomy, right? Yeah. So I checked that one off. And when they interviewed me, they said, what do you want to you know, come to MIT for with this background? And I said, well, I've got a journalism background, so I'm going to be a science journalist, which was a, a total lie. <laughs> but it was the flavor of the month that month. And they let me in. And then I found out after I got there that I had joined the geology department. And I'm thinking, what could be more boring than looking at okay. rocks? Never out of the What was I thinking? But I got to read science fiction. And the Mitzvahs, the MIT Science Fiction Club, was definitely not fandom. Um, with, they were so emphatically not fandom that, of course, they were part of fandom. What can I say? <laughs> but you know, their, their slogan was, we're not fans, we just read the stuff. But we would go to all of the conventions to buy books for the library. That's why I wound up going to the Toronto Worldcon in 1973 and the Washington one in 1974 and all the local conventions in Boston. But as I started really doing the science and the big project I worked on as an undergrad and then for my master's degree was modeling how a collection of rock and ice, like one of the moons of Jupiter, might melt. And... It required a lot of computer programming, mm. but first it required having the science fiction movie in your head. What's going to happen with the rocks heat up because of radioactive elements in them? And I could picture this animated film in my brain. Well, the rocks are going to fall to the center. Oh, that's going to displace the water. That's another thing to add into the model. Mm. Oh, the pressure is going to change, and that will change the melting point of the end. So another thing to add to the model. So I realized at that point, the imagination of science fiction was going to be an important part of the ability to do science. At the same time, I started going to science meetings and I thought, oh, this blows away science fiction. I never want to go to a science fiction convention ever again, because science was so much more exciting. And that was the tension I was living under for a number of years. I wound up going to the University of Arizona, which was an exciting place. They were just starting a science uh, planetary sciences department mm. and virtually everybody in the field of planetary science there are maybe a few hundred of us in the world and a third of us had either been to arizona or to mit so i kind of knew the entire field that yeah and yeah. that was exciting doing the science you know until until i was 30 and then suddenly was thinking you know why should i do this when people are starving in the world and that started the whole why i became a, a jesuit if the library was on fire and you could save, let's say, two or three science fiction books, uh, which would they be? Um, I am a sucker for space opera and humor. And so I've en always enjoyed the James Schmitz books. Okay. Uh, I think Witches of Keras is still one of my favorites. And part of it is the theme of the guy who has to pretend to be something that he isn't and get away with it. And that's always fun. <laughs> Uh, it kind of cheats when at the end he actually has the powers that he pretends to have, but that's, you know, <laughs> something I can argue with the author about. Uh, the Harry Potter books, of course. Um, uh, another author not quite as well known that I really love is P.C. Hodgell. Okay. And uh, who wrote a book called uh, Godstock. And one of the books that I think gets fantasy right and it gets religion right because there's no question about whether or not the religion is true, but the main character is sort of ticked off at her God. And that's an honest reaction to have. Mm, You've yes. got you know, a real religion. It's one of these scary things in life. 
is that your friends, the people you love, are the people you can afford to be mad at. Mm. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why I never successfully dated anybody. I was always afraid they were going to leave me. And so eventually they did. <laughs> and rightly so, because I only dated smart women. <clears throat> um, another set of books that I have, and this probably is surprising, are the Arthur Ransom books. Okay. I grew up, when I was a kid, I discovered Swallows and Amazons. And growing up in the Great Lakes, and we around sailboats, they were a natural for me, so I really identified with all of them. Mm, Plus, mm. one of the characters, I don't know if you've ever read them, is this kid who's called the professor who wants to be the astronomer. And the idea that you could be a nerd and a professor and the cool kids would think you were cool, uh, boy, what a fantasy. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Well, being a nerd is cool these days, I think, actually. Yeah, but it certainly was not in the 60s. No, I, I guess that's, a, that's more, a more recent innovation, isn't it? Yeah. The, the current books, the ones that I, you know, as soon as a new one comes out, I will buy without looking. Yeah. Are the uh, Steve Miller and Sharon Lee, Lee Aiden books. Okay. And again, like I say, I love space opera. Mm. I don't want deep and heavy stuff. I do deep and heavy for a living. Sure, sure. Sure. So you, you're looking for, are you, what are you looking for? A bit of escapism, a great story? What, it, what in, I'm in really those looking kind of books? for are people who I want to spend time with. Okay. And people who are close enough to me that I can identify, but different enough for me that I can learn something from them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, your life is kind of, has got science and religion deeply woven together in it. Um, so what do you think science can do for religion? And what can religion do for science? There's a cliche that I've been quoted as saying, but really I stole it from Pope John Paul II. And it goes something, let's see if I can remember it. Um, religion, science keeps religion from being superstition, and, sci and religion keeps science from being self-absorbed and thinking it has all the answers. And that's certainly true. But that's not really the way it works with me because I'm still okay. self-absorbed and I still think I have all the answers, you know, <laughs> and I'm still superstitious. So obviously it hasn't taken. What it does for me, first of all, the religion gives me the reason to do the science. Going yeah. back to the days yeah. when I was, you know, lying in bed wondering, why am I doing this? And this is a question that every scientist eventually has to come up with, you know. Really, what's getting me up this morning to go back to the lab to face a computer screen that, you know, looks just like the computer screen I was looking at yesterday, and when am I ever going to get this done? And science is painfully slow at times. And the bigger question, you know, why am I doing it when people are starving in the world? I'm doing it out of a sense of joy that I get when I do the science and a sense of love for everything that goes into the science whether it's love of touching the rocks, love of mm. the theories that mm. are so exciting to explain what I'm seeing, love of the people I get to hang out with when I do the astronomy. Mm. And all of that builds into why I do it. And that sense of love is grounded in my religious, especially the Jesuit idea of finding God in all things, of mm. um, encountering mm. God as a friend, as a mentor, as your advisor as someone who's looking over your shoulder to share the jokes with you and mm, to say, wasn't that one cool? Let me show you the next puzzle. That's the religious side. The other okay. side, what the science does for the religion yeah, yeah. is equally exciting because it puts everything into a context. It shows me that, you know, the universe could have been made a lot of ways, but it was made this way. 
And isn't that interesting? Of all the ways that it could mm, work, this mm. is the way it actually does work. If you go into science with a belief in a God, you're not going to find God at the end of, the, of your you know, research. I don't look through the microscope trying to think of God's at the other end. But if you go in already accepting that there's a creator out there who's responsible for this, maybe I can learn something about how this creator works by seeing how the universe works. And you wind up with some pretty deep insights into God's personality, for lack of a better phrase. So that's fun. So I just want to pick up on a, a, some of the things that you said there, particularly about, I, I think vocation perhaps might be a good word to describe it. So you were talking about the, the, the joy you experience in doing the work you do and in pursuing the vocation that you have. And, and that's a, a, a sense of observing and paying attention and paying attention to the detail of what's around you and having an inquiring mind perhaps as well. So how could these things help a writer what kind of things could a writer learn from the the way you practice your vocation and and the the things that you've learned, the spiritual disciplines that you've learned from from being a Jesuit? Well, there's two things. First of all, the sense of wonder comes out of the things you're passionate about. You know, I've written a bunch of books, both science and a couple of fiction books that mm, I'll never show anybody, but I had a lot of fun writing them. And I know that that sense of Every book is a thought experiment. It's very similar to how it's set up in science. But the bigger thing, and this is the, the scariest one, is to trust the truth. Hmm. In science, you can't go in forcing the experiment to give you the answer you expected. Hmm. In religion, you can't go into prayer telling God, guess what, I figured it all out, here's what you should be doing. You have to trust where the story drags you. And you have to trust that if you have truth in your story and the truth comes out of the story, at the end of the day, it'll be a good story. Yeah. Even if yeah. all the details somehow don't work. I, I mentioned The Witches of Keras. Yes. One of my favorite books. It's got plot holes that you could drive a truck through. It's, you know, <laughs> there are parts of it that just clearly don't make sense. But you don't care because the truth of the people and the way they react and, I mean, the best kind of book is the one that you end saying, I didn't see that coming, but I should have because it was all there. Yes, yes. Uh, the friends of mine who've written books like that. The series is called Selling Water by the River, and the author is Chaz Brechley. Okay. You know, I don't like all of his stuff because he writes truly horrible horror, and I just sort of, ooh, it's creepy, yeah. which is funny because he's one of the sweetest and most gentle human beings you'd ever meet. <laughs> but that particular series I really love because he sets up your expectations, and then turns them inside out by doing what would really happen, not what you expect in the yeah, typical yeah, trope happen. Yeah. That was kind of, I think, what I wanted to, to pick up with you, because my theory, I think, and I think this aligns with what, what you've said, is that there is a truth within a story, and, and the right story, the correct, the, the, the story one needs to write or tell contains the truth but you may not discover it you may not know what it is you may think it's something else but in fact when you come to it you discover mm -hmm. that the story goes off somewhere else because it's that's the truth of the story and if you're going to tell it properly that's where it'll go i mean i i think of the the dark materials books by philip pullman which mm. have a lot of problems mm. uh, i mean i'm always amused because there are two bad guys either the scientists you hate or the religious people you hate and there i am in both of them <laughs> but but the way they end is absolutely truthful which is to say 
the kids grow up and have miserable lives and die. And in his universe, that's the only other alternative. Mm, mm. And I don't think he intended it to be quite like that, you know, but that was what made it a true story. But that's the relentless reality, I suppose, or the, the of of what story? Of the universe that he's created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start with these assumptions, this is where you're going to end up. So I want to pick up on something you've just said there. We're looking at the truth and we're interested in the truth as writers, but sometimes that truth can present us with horrific things and stark things um, and lead us into cynicism. But how can, as writers and storytellers, how can we retain a sense of wonder about the world and joy in our lives and in the work that we do when uh, when it's easy to, to slip into cynicism? How How do we resist that? The way I do it you know, in my own life is you become cynical of the cynicism. And then you realize that even that isn't the answer and there's something more going on. That the truth doesn't stop there. Uh, mm. When I was mm. you know, a kid growing up in the 60s, one of my friends had one of these big buttons. People love buttons. And it yeah. said, question authority. And my thought was, question authority says who? <laughs> yeah. And... That sense, because really laughing, laughter is the way you break out of it. There is no situation so gloomy that you can't look and see from a totally different point of view how ridiculous it is, usually because you are taking yourself or the situation too seriously. And I want to come back to the this issue of truth and, and tweak it slightly to talk about authenticity. Because mm. for me, authenticity is, so telling the authentic story is a big deal. How can anyone who is creating art, and let's just say that in the broadest sense, it could be dance or drama or painting or writing, whatever. How can we as artists maintain the authenticity of our work? What do we need to do? I think, and just go back to my scientific work, if you Mm. start with a good premise and you follow it rather than doing what's expected of you, that's where you find truth, that's where you find authenticity. I mean, what's the opposite of authenticity? It's fake. Mm, and mm. when are you tempted to fake it? When you're looking for a shortcut to make a fast sale. Yeah. Whether it's lying about what you're going to accomplish in the proposal you're writing, or lying about what you actually did accomplish in the mm. paper you're writing, mm. or forcing the characters to do, you know, to, to the happy ending that you know isn't reality. So how do these things relate to being brave or cowardly how 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 because how, it feels like there's a connection there for me oh yeah so no, how does is. that work in your mind in the world of science the brave thing is to try something new that you haven't done before that you don't know how to do especially after you've had some success and you know that you could go on the rest of your career doing the same experiment over and over again sure. and publishing essentially the same paper. And being brave is to say, I've done that. I'm going to let other people do it better than me. Uh, I'm not going to claim this is mine. No one else can touch it because my identity is wrapped up in, in this number, in this experiment. But I'm not afraid to be laughed at. And that means there are going to be times when people will laugh at you because you deserved it. <laughs> and that's part of the game. Mm. And there are times when you're going to fail. And if you haven't failed as a writer or as a person of faith or as a scientist, then you haven't been trying. So does that mean, therefore, that however seriously we take our art or our science or our writing or whatever, 
that actually we we can't afford to put our own sense of self-worth or our own identity absolutely in the science in the art we it almost has to be somewhere else for us to do it well i think so um and it can be in your family it can be in the person you love it can be in your religion it can you know somebody at some place or something at some place has to be the axiom you won't let go of yeah. and on yeah. top of which you can then build everything else. Any rational system has got to start with assumptions. Mm. And, and you have to, for that very reason, accept that there's going to be other people out there who have chosen other axioms and don't be mad at them if they wind up living a life that you find horrifying. Because in a sense, they're being honest to what they assumed. Hmm. Um, nonetheless, hmm. if you're the one that has to pick up the pieces after they've messed their and other people's lives up, you could justifiably be mad at them. Yeah, I mean, you could, you might philosophically understand the the, the path they've taken, but mm -hmm. still be a bit grumpy because you're having to clear up the mess, I guess. And And that's also true of characters in a book, because if you don't care about the character, then you don't care if they mess up their lives and you don't care about what yeah. they do. And you yeah. don't care enough to turn the page. So does that mean that the hallmark of a good character or a great character is that when, we've, when we engage with that character as consumers, readers, viewers, we actually care about them? Mm -hmm. If you don't care about them, then I won't believe anything else that happens. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean that every book has to be like that. Ringworld is mm. a fabulous science fiction novel. And I don't even remember what the plot is because the plot was totally forgettable. And <laughs> I don't frankly recall that there are any characters in that book that i particularly cared for but i love the setting ah okay rendezvous with rama yeah. yeah 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 and yeah. can you name any of the people who appear in rendezvous with rama all i remember <laughs> is rama and that's really what the book was about and that's yeah. okay because there the setting is the character but there has to be something you care about whether it's the setting or the magic system or whatever there has to be a reason why you want to spend time with that book is it and is it the truth that makes you care? That's a good question. I, you know, <laughs> my instinct is to say absolutely yes. Yeah, that, that winds up with a very flexible definition of truth. Well, I mean, it, I, I guess it, you then get not that we've got the time or the yeah. this is the place to do it, but you get into so what kind different kinds of truth are there? Exactly. Um, yeah, the real tragedy are people who are so afraid of life that they make themselves boring by not discovering. I'll go back to when I was 30 years old. Yeah. And there I was in excellent health. I had my degrees. I didn't need any more education. I had respect and even, you know, enemies. It was good enough to have be worthy of enemies. <laughs> I had no debts. I had a healthy family. I didn't have, you know, girlfriends or children or anything like that tying me back. I was free to do anything in the world that I wanted to mm. do. Mm. You know, I was upper middle class white American male. I had, you know, the easy button, as John Scalzi would put it. That was me. And I had no idea what I wanted. And that was the wake up call to say, I don't even know what I want to do. Because up to then, I'd been doing what I thought people were telling me to do. What I thought people expected yeah, me to do. Yeah. So I want to keep try and keep a link between what you were doing in your life and the way we build characters as writers it sounds as if that was a key moment in your life when you needed to practice some good self-examination self-reflection like like the good jesuit that you've become right. um and self-reflection as a 
godly discipline is important. And what might we learn as writers from that? And what, how could we incorporate that perhaps into our characters? Well, part of it is that not everyone reflects in the same way. Okay. And that can lead to you know, conflict in a, with a small c, the things that give you story. When two people are put into the same environment and react in different ways because of who they are and where they're coming from and how they mm. interpret the signals they get. That makes for interesting story. Mm. Mm. And it gives them a chance to, uh, to explore who they are. You probably know the old trope, if you've got a machine in a science fiction story that everybody uses, but the reader wouldn't recognize, how do you describe what the machine is? You don't say, well, John, as you know, this prisma does that. <laughs> you can't do that. But the trick is, you have the machine break down. And then as they're complaining about how it's not working right, you, the reader, knows how it's supposed to work. Well, that's how you describe character. Mm, you mm. have something break down. And then the character can reveal who they are by saying, this is you know, normally how this is supposed to work and life is supposed to be like this. And now it isn't. I want to go back to, though, to, to the one more point on truth, which yeah. I know of as a scientist. And the key thing about truth is that it's not final. It's not the answer in the back of the book. There's always more. Mm, mm. The story never ends. You know, if you, it's like every world that you create has many, many more details than you ought to put in the book. Mm. But if the details aren't there in your mind, you won't be able to create the world believably. And likewise, the truth is never final. And the truth is never, well, this is it, and I've got it, and it's the end. You never completely understand your characters. You never mm. completely mm. get to the bottom of what mm. was going on. Mm. But we do make progress. Mm. So weirdly, you might have just answered the next question I was going to ask you, actually, which I'll ask you anyway, because you may wish to give a kind of nuance on it. So I'm, I'm totally on board with you with this concept of actually we have to tell the truth in some way in our stories. But the truth can be quite heavy-handed and and, and and that approach can seem didactic particularly well, if, you that, feel that's if you think that there is only one truth and this is it by golly if you tell the story properly the story tells the truth you don't ah, okay cool yeah 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 and at the end of the story you've learned something that you didn't know when you sat down to write the story so as so as the writer or as an artist my art or my story teaches me something it better Otherwise, it'd be the most boring thing you ever did. <laughs> so what are you, I am sure, have developed a range of good practices as a Jesuit brother, as a scientist, good practices and disciplines from your life could we learn from as writers? Doing nothing is not wasting time. Okay. That's Do you want to elaborate on that? Lesson. That's the biggest lesson of being a Jesuit. I mean, the, the mistake is... Uh, why am I sitting here wasting my time sitting in the chapel praying? I should be off doing. And the greatest temptation are all the things that start rushing through your mind while you're trying to sit and do nothing and think mm. and just be and live with the character and live with the story. Suddenly you're worried about, oh, I forgot to do the laundry. Oh, I forgot to you know get to the store and, oh, somebody's going to be mad at me because I didn't reply to their email. Those are all lies. You need the time. And, you know, every, every Jesuit, the interesting thing is we've got moments of prayer when we're together. But we also are expected to have time, they say an hour, if you can pull it off, an hour that you spend in prayer. And our style of prayer is not reciting words over and over again. No. It's being quiet and letting 
God, for lack of a better term, come and hang out with you and listen. And you're talking about an hour a day there, aren't you, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to get into the practice of when and what that's got to be scheduled into my day, because otherwise the the day goes away. You lose Mm, it. Sure. So how might that insight from 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 that world that you inhabit inform a writer? If I'm a writer, I'm working on my story, I'm wrestling with it a bit. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I creatively and helpfully do nothing, and and obviously you are doing something to improve my story or to find the truth in my story or to or to make it better in some way? Um, it is it's really you know taking the time to even do simple things like gardening, uh, being out, mm. being outside, being mm. with nature, looking at the stars, mm. something that because you know, your brain is always working while you're not trying while you're not stopping it by telling the brain what to do and this gives you know the subconscious a chance to work out the knot in the story so that when you come back Mm. to it you go oh that's what's happening yeah Yeah. you know when i was a little kid and i build these plastic uh forts and things with the toys and you probably played with plastic as kids the first generation of plastic plastic breaks and especially it breaks if you try to force it to fit yeah yeah. And if you're in danger of breaking your story, that means it's time to go go for a walk. Hmm. Look at the stars, go look at the hmm. trees, go look at hmm. the clouds. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be an hour, 15 minutes. Sure, sure, sure. But to have that chance to be away from people, to not be afraid to be with yourself and do nothing. And set a timer and don't let yourself, you, you sit down in the five minutes, you say, oh, I've got it. No, you don't. Give yourself a full 15 minutes. And if you forget that great idea at the end of the 15 minutes, it wasn't such a great idea in the first sure. place. I guess that, that could be pretty scary because you might, you really might find out who you are if you do that though, might oh, you? Yeah. Well, that's really the scary part of, uh, I have a friend who, uh, Cliff Stoll, wrote a book about uh, computer hackers and, you know, it was a true story. But it was also fiction in the sense that he started talking about himself in the book as the Cliff character. Mm. And he says, writing the story this way is like walking around naked. (laughs) And that's what being a writer is. And that 15 minutes that you spend with yourself is often where you get the courage to say, I don't care if people laugh at me for how flabby I am walking around naked. Because this is who I am. Mm. And mm. if you like me, that you're not going to notice that. There, just this past weekend, I was in Paris for a wonderful couple of days. I gave a talk there. By accident, ran into a couple of friends of mine who were science fiction writers, Joe Walton and Ada Palmer. Mm. They dragged me off to the Louvre, and there's a fabulous statue of Voltaire. And he's sitting with a scroll looking at you as an old man, and he's nude. <laughs> and it's how often do you see statues of you know old flabby men and yet that's why yeah, that shows him as the great writer because mm. he was not afraid mm. to expose himself mm. but he must that me and, and i think i saw something on social media that that, that picture that you put from that right. encounter in his case he that that statue must be suggesting that he has found something else other than his work in which he finds his reality and is rooted, that he then produces his work. Well, I find it very uh, suggestive that uh, the, the 
nasty parts are covered up by his writing. So maybe that's <laughs> as nude as he thought he was. <laughs> um, so we're coming to the end now. And I wondered if there was any final bits of advice or observations that you've got for writers and artists in general. Um, It's really easy to divide people and yourselves into categories like introvert, extrovert, all of that. Mm. We all need to be alone and we all need to be with people. Mm. Mm. And we're writing for other people to read but we're writing because we couldn't not write. Yes. Also, both of those things are true. And it's in the tension between those two that art is created. So between the the, the tension of the imperative to create art and... Mm -hmm. By myself, not with somebody not looking over my shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be be true and it has to be mine, but it also has to be for someone else. But it also has to be for someone to read. Yeah, yeah. The story is not complete until okay. um, um, Dorothy L. Sayers wrote a marvelous essay on the Trinity, the mind of the maker. And she describes a play as having three parts. There is the script that somebody wrote. There is the performance of the play in the theater. And there is the experience of the people in the audience experiencing mm. the play. Mm. All of them are the play. And you wouldn't have a play if you missed any one of those. Hmm. And presumably, if there's a if there's a creative tension, and some people don't like creative tension, things pulling at each other. Yeah. Actually, the the deal is that's okay. I presume that's oh, yeah. all right to have creative tension it, is good. Not only is it good, it's essential. You, you even if the tension is, I don't have tension. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we finish? If it's not fun, then why are we doing this? At yeah. the end of the day, yeah. there has to be a joy in it. Yeah. And to me, that joy is the presence of God. And to me, the presence of God is the same thing as telling the truth. That's a great point to stop, I think. Thanks a bunch. But thank you again for your time. Really appreciate right. it. God bless you. Talk, take care. Talk Bye-bye. to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.